Come on in. Welcome to another edition of the Strip Till Farmer Podcast. Great to have you with us as always. My name is Noah Newman. The results are in from the 2023 Strip Till Benchmark Survey, and we've got one of Strip Till's foremost authorities, Tony Vinn, to break down some of the numbers as revealed for the first time. Tony also touches on what's changed in Strip Till since he started studying it over 30 years ago, the challenges Strip Tillers face today, and what to expect during his upcoming 10th anniversary presentation at the National Strip Tillage Conference, August 3rd in Bloomington, Illinois. And before we get started, big thank you to our sponsor, Sound Agriculture. Let's jump right into the conversation. Well, Tony, great to see you. Thanks for joining us. I know it's a really busy time of the year for you in general, but uh, just, you know, people who aren't familiar with your work, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience who's tuning in right now? Well, thank you for this opportunity. Yes, I've been a early researcher in the area of strip tail, uh, starting actually strip tail research at the University of Guelph in Ontario, Canada, before I went to Purdue University in 1998. And I've had the pleasure of uh, working on corn primarily in strip-tail systems uh, for approximately uh, 30 years now. And I've also just had the opportunity to mentor young people as uh, graduate students and to always get them to think about the combination of management practices that can be used with today's genetics in order to produce results that are sustainable, that are profitable, that save soil, uh, and at the same time are good for um, air quality and the rest of the environment that we so, you know, much are responsible for in our farming activities. Yeah, I mean, there's probably so much information you're learning every year, something new, but just when you think 30 years, that's a long time to be studying strip till, probably longer than almost anybody else out there. Just what what comes to mind when you think about how strip till has evolved over the years and just in general, what, what's the state of strip till right now? Well, the state of strip-till is that it is uh, still expanding. I haven't seen your latest survey results, so I, <laughs> I don't That's know. That's coming up late. later in the podcast. We're going to reveal some of those results for the first time, so stay tuned for that. <laughs> right. Well, thank you. Um, those are always exciting numbers for me because I've been a, an advocate of the system. But really, my roots in this uh, started as a result of doing uh, no-till research in you know a fairly northern production system and uh, facing challenges with everything to do with uh, no-till especially when corn followed corn and even to some extent when corn followed other high straw producing crops uh, like uh, winter wheat, especially if the straw itself was not baled. And so the initial thought was that we could use uh, strip tail as a way of having the soil warm up faster, dry out faster, so that your first operation following a single pass in the fall of strip tail would be to do uh, planting in the spring. And, um, and that technology um, took off 
as an alternative to no-till. And I've always found it surprising over the years that strip-till adoption is coming both from those who have had some frustration with continuous no-till in very high residue uh, situations, as well as from conventional farmers. When I initially thought about strip-till, I was... Um, I was facing an obstacle um, in in certain soils in and especially in this corn on corn, and uh, and I just thought that strip till would be the answer for that situation. But today, I think a lot of adoption is um, is is coming from those who have given up on full width uh, conventional systems because of the fact that it. Uh, takes time, delays planting when spring full width tillage is required, uh, costs money, and uh, and contributes to to soil erosion problems. What do you think is the biggest challenge or the biggest reason why strip till adoption rates, even though they may be on the rise, aren't as high as they could be? Especially when you when you take the perspective that you know, that you think strip-till is, as you put it 10 years ago, and we'll get into more in-depth about your presentation at the first strip-till conference, You, I think you call it the, the near-ideal uh, tillage system. So, you know, why aren't more people doing it, would you say? Yes, 10 years ago when I spoke at your conference, uh, I said that this strip-till system is almost perfect. I still believe that to be the case, but we are not at a perfect system that can be used on all soils, all crop rotations, all environments. And so we need to be realistic about that. Um, there is a continued reluctance from some in the, especially in the conventional till history group that are concerned about weed control especially with uh, herbicide um, resistant weeds and who just uh, like starting with a clean field in quote, in quotes <laughs> with uh, that has not uh, necessarily been created by a burn down as it would be in no-till or in, in strip-till, but is, uh, has been mechanically generated for them with some full width uh, tillage pass and and it's it's strange to me of all of the things that um, corn and soybean farmers have done over the years new genetics new management practices one of the things that has has changed the most has been the uh, push towards earlier planting systems where um, unless we have a late spring like we did in 2019. And that push to early planting has been helped by installation of uh, tile drainage systems on those soils that are poorly drained naturally. And it has been helped by much bigger equipment. Um, and it is, has been uh, helped, in, in my view, by strip tillage um, operation, especially where strip tillage was, was done in the fall, although now we're also seeing some success with um, 
where you're planting being enabled by certain spring strip-till operations on, on certain soils. So why isn't strip-till even more popular? I suppose it comes back to the same question that uh, dominated the um, early uptake of no-till. And that is that if you're going to be geared up for no-till and strip-till, the thinking is that it's going to be most economical in a situation where it can be reliably used on all of your acreage and where it replaces the conventional tillage lineup that farmers own. If a strip-till system is an add-on to a whole suite of conventional tillage equipment, then it is less affordable because there is a significant investment cost, not just for the strip-till machine, but also for the fertilizer delivery systems that are associated with it. And so there is this um, concern, you might say, about um, its reliability and its ability to do all of the crops on all of the slopes that a, a farmer's fields may um, have and in all you know, um, weather situations. If I could control the timing of and the amount of rain after harvest, um, I think um, I would have much more success in, in having uh, strip tillage uh, reliably used by many more farmers. But over the years, um, especially on higher clay content soils, there's been concern for how do I um, implement strip till because the soil moisture range in which you can successfully not just do a deeper loosening, but also create a berm that is going to settle down to the point where you you still have some fraction of that berm height left when you're planting into it, is um, still a, um, a challenge. And the higher the soil moisture contents are in the fall, um, the earlier that frost sets in, et cetera, the less flexibility there is to create an ideal firm with uh, fall strip tillage. And then if you're dedicated to a strip till system, the more dependent you become on uh, spring strip till as your backup. Well, you'll, I know you'll be touching on a lot of the topics that you, that you first talked about um, during your presentation 10 years ago at the very first National Strip Tillage Conference. And we're excited to have you back uh, this August in Bloomington, Illinois for the 10th anniversary lecture, where you'll be talking about is strip till still the near ideal, near perfect uh, tillage system, which you kind of just answered there. But if you can, just maybe give us a little preview of what you'll be covering during the presentation, what, what people there will really uh, take away from you taking the stage 10 years after your initial presentation. I think a couple of things have, um, have changed uh, significantly. Number one has been the fact that uh, a larger fraction of the strip tail producers are now uh, regularly putting uh, banded fertilizer down at the same time. 
Um, number two, a much larger percentage of the producers uh, using strip tail are doing so with RTK, and those costs were um, higher proportionally than they were uh, 10 and 20 years ago. And so I think the, the advent of um, much more frequent use of RTK has enabled what is really important, which is to plant the rows right in the center of the, uh, of the zone that you loosen. Another thing that's happened is that our, um, in, on a crop like corn, our plant populations have gone uh, consistently higher especially in uh, target, targeted environments for high yield production systems. And uh, that in a way has uh, meant that there is increased competition from plant to plant. And that is also the reason why uh, strip tail continues to perform well, because it does a great job of creating a consistent soil, physical and a soil nutrient environment in the, the root zone of plants that are closer and closer together. So these plants are in tremendous competition with each other. And one of the reasons why I still believe that strip tail is a near perfect system is, is the fact that it provides the opportunity to control where the wheel traffic goes relative to where the roots are. And it uh, provides an opportunity for every plant to uh, compete with equal resources compared to its um, neighboring plant, because we will not get to higher yields unless we increasingly uh, think about systems where there's uh, no plant left behind. There's just a taste of what you can hear at uh, Tony's presentation, kicking off the conference August 3rd in uh, Bloomington, Illinois. Can't wait for that. Uh, striptillfarmer.com to register if you wanna see Tony speak. All right, so so I know you've been waiting for this. The strip till the tenth annual benchmark study in my hands, hot off the presses. Ah, still hot to the touch. So I, I pulled up a couple numbers, and we'll just get your reaction to this. And this is this is kind of live, so I know you. So we'll see what your spontaneous reaction is. Uh, so the so the yields on strip till acres, and again, most of the respondents to the survey, about sixty one percent were in the Corn Belt. Uh, so keep that in mind. Average strip till yields. 207 for corn and 61 for soybeans, both ahead of U.S. averages and also ahead of no-till counterparts. So I, I'm, I bet you're not surprised by that. Not at all. So those are those numbers are right in line with where I think strip-till producers are on average, um, even if you assume there was no advantage in terms of earlier planting. Uh, my experience is that we're we're gaining at least five, maybe ten bushels on corn from strip till, compared to full width, let's say dischisel plowing. So, so those those numbers are in line with uh, with what I'm expecting. And then, if you add to it the earlier planting opportunities, that uh, for soybeans, for instance, increase the number of nodes that can set pods. There's just an opportunity there to to gain yield, and so I'm I'm pretty excited about uh, those numbers. Uh, they're solid. Um, they could go even higher, and that's what we need to be thinking about. Uh, 207, impressive, but perhaps not enough. 
Yeah, 207 is actually the, the second highest total we've got gotten in the 10 years of this survey. Uh, 2017, 209 was the corn yield. Let's burn a quick timeout, and here's a message from our sponsor. Source provides 25 pounds of nitrogen and 25 pounds of phosphorus, leading to more productivity and supporting your fertilizer reduction goals. This foliar-applied biochemistry has a low use rate and is tank mix compatible, getting a free ride into the field. Check out Source. It's like caffeine for microbes. Learn more at www.sound.ag. Now back to the conversation. So yeah, as you said, it could go higher. And, and you just touched on the advantages of strip tilling soybeans. So perfect segue into this next one. Survey respondents strip tilled an average of 933 acres of corn and 586 acres of soybean. That's the highest soybean total in the 10-year history of the survey. So maybe more people are catching on to the advantages of strip tilling soybeans. Yes, and I think that's a good thing. It's also come about, though, with a sort of a pulling back, a retrenchment of narrow row soybean production in the Midwest. Now, whether that's always a good idea or not, um, that's, that's still up for debate. I remember working with uh, systems of twin row soybeans, um, you know, 25 years ago or something like that. And, and I still think on the soybean side, especially in earlier maturing regions, uh, that we have to be thinking about doing something other than wide row. Fortunately, there are strip-till toolbars out there that'll do 20 or 22-inch row widths. And those are, are, are ideal, I think, for that production system. But if we're going to rely on strip-till for 30-inch soybeans, uh, then we need to be thinking in terms of optimizing the rest of the management system to get those soybean yields even higher. Next question, survey response were asked, when do they build their strips? 48% build them in the fall, 31% in the spring, 20% said they do both. Is there a best time to build strips or does it depend on where you are, the weather, et cetera, et cetera? I think it depends, first of all, on the, on the soil. If I were farming high clay content soils, and especially if my drainage system was 100%, I would definitely want to say only in the fall because what you, really what you're looking for is the first opportunity to plant into that stale seed bed type of uh, berm. I'm not surprised by those numbers um, because they're, um, certainly if you move towards uh, sandier soils or Long textured soils, the more moderate uh, texture environment, and especially if you have uh, good systematic drainage systems in regions of the country where that's needed, it's possible to, to get satisfactory results with um, spring operations. It's also, I think, a opportunity for people on the corn side of things to be band applying um, some of their um, nitrogen. And so sometimes you see it married together with anhydrous ammonia application, sometimes with urea. There's the closer that is to planting and the sandier the soil, the more I'm concerned about what that does to 
possible toxicity to the first corn roots that come out. But on the whole, there is this opportunity for expanded strip tail, whether fall or spring. However, I will say that my preference has historically been fall ahead of spring. I've become an acceptor of uh, spring strip tail operations for those situations where the fall strip tail wasn't possible in the first place because there was way too much rain um, and the soils were too wet to create a satisfactory berm. And I've also been accepted, accept, it's acceptable to me to do spring strip tail if you are on slopes that are above 5% and where there's too much uh, danger of having real erosion form in the loosened berms if you're doing that strip till in the, in the fall. I think, though, we need to be thinking critically about if we're doing strip till in the fall or the spring, what does that mean for us in terms of how much of our traditional macronutrient applications should occur at the same time as we're doing the strip tillage operation. And I'd be curious, you know, from your survey now in terms of just how many strip tillers are applying fertilizers at the same time um, that they're doing that. And my, my guess would be 75%, but I, I could be wrong. Do you use variable rate seeding for corn? What's your guess? Do you think most people said yes or no? It's close. It's, I would think that uh, the majority of producers today are, are using variable rate seeding. It's 41% for yes, 52% no, and 6%, a little over 6% no, but planning to next year. So it's like split right down the middle right now. Wow. Okay. All right, cover crops, 61% seeded cover crops in strip-tilled fields. That's pretty consistent with recent surveys, but eight points higher than the first survey we did in 2015. So what's your take on that? More strip-tillers using cover crops. I think it speaks to the fact that uh, dedicated strip-till producers are soil health conscious, more so than those that rely on conventional tillage. And so I think that speaks well to the um, soil stewardship uh, factor that features prominently in the minds of uh, strip tail producers. So I think that speaks well. I would also say that is, it has been promoted strongly. And I would also say that uh, when it's well done, strip tail helps the helps a crop to establish itself well compared to a pure no-till situation on some soils and in some springs. And so in a way, if you're going to do cover crops and if you can successfully do strip-till, you can't do this with all cover crops, okay? Like this is something that I think is, is by and large uh, or limited to um, fall rye and other cereal type of uh, cover crops. It, it doesn't suit itself well to, let's say, a leguminous um, cover crop situation where you might have a lot more challenges with roots um, preventing the creation of, of this loosened strip. But I, I'm a little surprised, actually, uh, even with all of that said, 
that 60% were combining cover crops and strip tail. That's, uh, that's yeah. a higher number than, than I anticipated, but I think it, uh, it, it speaks well to the kind of people that strip tillers are. What is your typical corn planting population with strip till? So 22%, the highest number said 33,000 to 34,000. 17% said 34,000 to 35,000. And 20% for typical corn planting population with strip till said 35,000 or more. What's your reaction to that? They're all in the ballpark. There is lots of evidence out there that uh, suggests that that's what we should be planting today's hybrids at is something in the neighborhood of uh, 32 to 35,000. So they're, it's all in the ballpark. I'm curious as to where that's gonna go in the next uh, 10 year period. I think if you, I don't know if this survey asked that same question 10 years ago, but my experience in the Midwest is that the growth of uh, plant population in terms of what planting density do corn farmers actually use has plateaued somewhat. And part of that is driven by seed costs, uh, but part of it is also driven by the fact that uh, it's not always the case that more is better. For soybean planting populations, 42.6% said 120,000 or less, which is, Pretty consistent with last year, but in 2019, I don't know if the numbers were off in 2019 or not, but this is a big, big difference. In 2019, only 8% said their typical soybean planting population was 120,000 or less. I think that, yeah, once again, those are, are in the ballpark. What, what are we trying to achieve? We're trying to achieve a final stand of 90 to 100,000 um, seeds. And, and I think that makes sense. I, I think higher... Uh, seeding rates would be required if you were uh, planting later, but since most strip tailors are also planting earlier, I, I think that this is uh, right in the ballpark. And um, it's interesting to me, just in the scheme of things, how much soybean seeding rates have come down in the last 20 years. How is fertilizer placed if applied during strip till operations? 61% banded below the berm, 42% mixed into the berm, and 6% between the berms. About what do you expect? Well, in a way, what that does is, as much as anything, is that it identifies the equipment that you're using for strip till, whether you're using a, a shank-based system or a coulter-based system. So I think it says a lot about which manufacturers um, have sold the equipment to the farmers that are that are using these alternate placements, and those things will will always, you know, be subject to uh, to modification. My my thoughts are that there still is an advantage for more separation between high nitrogen and high potassium from the seed at higher rates of nitrogen plus potassium. And so, um, so a little bit you know, of, of the placement depends on the extent to which you are meeting crop removal values of those nutrients 
with that single banding opportunity uh, during during strip tail and how much you're relying on um, other uh, timings of application, perhaps um, in season or perhaps foliar to meet the nutrient demands of the crop. Yeah, it's really interesting just going all over all the data. I mean, there's about 50 questions in here, so we could spend hours doing this. So what we could we could cut it off there. Maybe um, in the future we can go over some more of those uh, data points, and I can I can get you these too after the recording if you want to take a look. But um, yes, highly. Oh yeah, Thank I'll you. send them your way. I figured you want to get your hands on that on that data. But um, well, Tony, I, I really appreciate the time. I know you're busy, but before we let you go, anything else you want to add or? Something exciting coming up that you're focusing on in your studies or any, any, just what's next on the horizon for you? Well, what's next on the horizon is uh, retirement. And so what does that mean for me? I'm still trying to figure that out. But one of the things I will um, clue you into is that I, I love farming. And so perhaps uh, this is the time for me to uh, focus with uh, family members on doing something in much larger fields than the smaller plots that I have traditionally done research on. Um, that's not been the only place I've done research. I've also done research in large on-farm strips, replicated strips. But um, I'm looking forward to continued growth in strip tail and this conference is a great way of having people visit with each other about what works for them. And so um, I'm looking forward to meeting the uh, farmers as well as uh, those who s supply this um, industry because it's a, uh, it's a dynamic forward thinking industry. And that'll wrap things up for this week's Strip Till Farmer podcast. Thanks to Tony Vin for joining us. Great perspective there. Now, we'll have an article with a full breakdown of the survey soon on striptillfarmer.com, so be on the lookout for that. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to Sound Agriculture. And until next time, have a great day.